Hello world, welcome to episode 37. Today, we're talking Christmas and privateer with Ben Cathro. And I have Ben Cathro with me from the UK. Ben, how's it going today? Going really good. Reporting in from Plague Island. Plague nice. Island. <laughs> I heard that's not so hot over there right now. Things aren't great. It's getting a little bit wild. Luckily, I'm up in the middle of nowhere in Scotland, so we're we're avoiding the worst of it. Right. Always a good strategy. Also from Plague Island, we have James here. James is going to read the news in a bit. First, we've also got Brian Park, and I've got a question for you guys. It's a Christmas question. Brian Park, what would you get Mike Casimir for Christmas? Oh, that's a We're good picking question. on him because he's not here right now. I, You know what? Mike would like some sort of book thing. He reads a lot, like a lot more than people know. I'd probably get him some old obscure ass book. Yeah, that's what I get Mike Casimir for Christmas. Yep. Okay. I feel good okay. about that. All right. All right. James, what are you getting what? him? Oh, I'm not getting Casimir anything. I don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you. You said we're we're talking Christmas on yeah. this podcast. What does that mean, Levy? Well, we're talking like uh, none of know. the things we're talking about today are anything to do with Christmas. You're just lying to people. <laughs> uh, well, it's Christmas time, and I thought this would be like a Christmas theme podcast. So I none thought of the maybe things we're talking about are Christmas themed. My though. question is Christmassy, James. What would you get Brian for Christmas? <laughs> oh. I hadn't answered prepared for Kaz and now Brian. Um, yeah. I'd get him some, too. I'd get him some little blocks of aluminium, um, a lifetime supply so he can 3D print to his heart's content. Right. Uh, for Kaz, Brian. I'd get Kaz an e-bike. I've just got this weird feeling that Kaz would really like an e-bike. Oh. You took my answer. That is such a good answer. <laughs> I've also heard that Kaz has been riding e-bikes a ton lately and is loving them. Hey, Ben. <laughs> what would you like for Christmas? Oh, we we did that in a pink bike article, didn't we? I, my big thing is I've been wanting to get a motorbike, but they're really obnoxious and people around here don't like them. So I've been looking at an electric one. Uh, it's a KTM Freeride EXE, but they're so expensive. They're like way more expensive than the, ga- the petrol powered. I heard that bikes are just so much more expensive than motorcycles. Like I could buy a motorcycle for the price of that bike. I heard that a lot in the comments. Yeah, that's true. Also very true. But this bike would just be the raddest thing ever because I've got I've got a track planned out and I would just razz this electric motorbike up the track and make a track and then we're, we're done. Easy. All right, James, take us away. Make it Christmas theme news though. Brian, oh, Brian made <laughs> me look dumb. So you got to make it Christmas theme now. Oh yeah, it was definitely me. <laughs> Um, well, uh, starting off with um, congratulations, festive congratulations to Evan Wall, who was uh, crowned Pink Bike Academy champion. Um, Evan previously has podiumed at under 21 Enduro World Series races. Um, he's going to be taking on his first elite year next year with support from Orbea. Clearly, he's extremely fast. I thought he came across super well. Um, probably my pick for the winner. I really liked him. Um, and now he's going to be able to spend you know, the winter training, um, not working, and I'm excited to see you know how he uh, how he does when he, he starts racing next year C- coming into that like i i was like oh, well i knew ben and i was like well obviously he's gonna win mm-hmm. and then evan just came on strong i was like this is sick i got really excited towards the end i was like it's it's a foregone conclusion oh well, wait no it's not it was yeah. pretty exciting yeah. 
Ben's obviously super fast and got a yeah. bright future in the sport. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of next year's enduro races, um, there's been a bit of a change up in that calendar uh, and it features double header races for the first time. So taking a leaf out of the UCI's book, the EWS is going to be running a nine round series, but three of those are going to be back to back races. Um, unfortunately, it's like it's pretty Europe heavy this year, um, but I just think they're trying to give it the kind of the best chance of going ahead. Um, it's pushed back the start of it a bit and it means kind of less flying and things like that. So um, fingers crossed that means we, we do kind of get a full season next year. Um, are you guys a fan of this like double header format? Yeah, I think it makes it super exciting, but I'm interested actually from a racer's perspective, Ben, when you see that it's a double header like that, does that, does it, is that a good thing? Do you get excited when you see that you're doing the same track twice or what What are you thinking? Like I, I haven't done an event that's like that yet, but working with the guys last year doing the double headers, it sounded tough, like full day, two days of practice you're qualifying in a race, and this is the, the downhill races, this is separate to the enduro, and then doing that all again, people were suffering on the second one. And an enduro is only going to be mm-hmm. like more than that because do they do two days of practice also? And it's big miles and then race and then do that again. I, I think some people are going to have to rethink their training. There's going to be a lot of energy management changes. Do we know, James? If they're going to have different stages or like, what are they changing between the rounds? I haven't seen anything. I think it was race Friday, race Sunday. So like to get like a full new course learned and stuff in that time is like, mm-hmm. obviously not, not going to happen. Not that you may, I guess, learn the course and enduro, but like to change it or retape it, do all the different protocols you have to do. I I don't imagine it'll be different courses, but, but nothing confirmed. Be- very interesting dynamic for the second races then just that much more practice and the tracks will have changed from the first race and Mm -hmm. interesting moving on um specialized uh suffered a break-in uh this week to its in-house museum it's had 160 grand's worth of historic and employee-owned bikes stolen um among the 16 bikes um some kind of Pretty special ones, including um, Jaroslav's Cool Harvey's um, S-Works Epic, which he won Olympic gold in London on, um, Peter Sagan's Paris-Roubaix winning bike, and Ned Overend's um, S-Works Fatboy, um, which he won the national championships on. Yeah, this is a real shame. I guess the slight positive is these are going to be quite hard to sell on, right? Because they're so specialised, but not specialised. <laughs> so spe- <laughs> yeah. I've I've been to that showroom and for people who are have been around for a while and they like bikes and they like the history of it it's pretty crazy like Palmer's bike and Ned's bike and many many other bikes in this area and James did they just smash the front door and go in that way Yeah it seems like fairly well planned like two vehicles one still kind of outstanding um they went in on a Sunday when I guess they knew no one was there and yeah jeez did seems they- too bad did they, they didn't get Palmer's bike, right? That's the best one there in that showroom for sure. Yeah, I don't think they got it. It wasn't on the, the list that I saw anyway. Okay. Like we, what would you, what what would you even do with them? You with can't that. sell these things. Yeah. It might, do you think it's like some, some private collector has just organized it all? He's just like paid a group of guys to go in and it's like, I'm starting my own private museum. And I want those bikes. <laughs> and he's just hired some thugs. It's like a, like a movie. Yeah. It's like, what? It does seem quite short-sighted. And I, if I remember right, they have 
all those are in the front area. Yeah. Like in, near, in the waiting room, like just across from the waiting room. So I assume that part was open or they were able to get into that part, but then they couldn't get past. So maybe they, maybe that wasn't the plan. Like maybe they originally wanted to get all the other bikes behind, like in the next. Yeah. I, it's been a while since I've been there, but I remember going in the front doors and then you just turn right and there was a showroom and I don't mm-hmm. think there were any doors between yeah. the showroom and the lobby. I I suspect that it's just a bunch of dumbasses that took them, to be honest, because they probably realize now that they can't get rid of these bikes because no one with any bike knowledge would take them because you would know that you can't do anything with them. So some dumbasses, like crackheads, maybe looking through the window, saw these things, thought it'd be a great idea. Now they got all these things they can't get rid of. Well, hopefully they try and get caught. Yeah, there is um, there's a reward out there. So if on the off chance you do know something or suspect something, definitely get in touch with Specialized. And um, One last bit of news then, um, and that's that uh, riders in Britain are starting to feel the ramifications of Brexit as no deal starts to look more likely. Um, so we've heard that Rose Bikes has cancelled all orders to the UK. Canyon has suspended orders until January 11th and shipping prices have gone up. Um, if it is a no deal, um, prices on bikes will potentially go up 14%, 6% on e-bikes and 4% on bike parts. Um, speaking personally, like just really hope (laughs) we get some sort of deal, um, out of that because, um, yeah, it's not looking too great otherwise. It's, was this something that you were, you guys were expecting? Brexit or like it to get to this point (laughs) and then not be a deal? To get to this point. Yeah, with the with the increases in prices and stuff. Um, I, f- from like my perspective, no. Um, but I think it was always like a possibility when the vote happened, right? Um, obviously I voted to remain. Um, and when the vote happened, we weren't told like this is what the the the, the trade deals will be. This is what the kind mm-hmm. of the, the the breakup clauses will be. Um, it was kind of a gamble. And this is where we're at now with, I think, what we're on today, 20 seconds, so eight days to to finalise a, a trade deal. And yeah. Yeah, they're not going to finalise it. They're on holiday. They're off. They're <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> our politicians over sent. here. <laughs> yeah. Someone will just send busy. an email from uh, Europe and just be like, no deal. Sweet. 31st, send. From the south of France. See you later. Yeah, it's not, it's not ideal. And I don't, I'm hoping... Something will be figured out, but it's not looking not looking ideal. Well, I'm just looking at the the so prices will go up on all European bikes, whether they're direct or not direct. But it's it really seems to have affected the direct brands first, right? Um, yeah, I guess like because they are shipping bikes directly to customers, they have to kind of announce what's happening more immediately, right? If you order a bike now, um, you're paying for that shipping whereas if you go into a bike shop it's kind of already been brought into the country and shipping's already been paid in and stuff like that so right. but there's no way they're not passing on like 14 an additional 14 percent like there's no way anybody in that chain is going to eat that cost oh you, you don't think the distributor will just happily eat 14 percent, brian <laughs> no no weird, weird. <laughs> that's strange <laughs> i mean on a high-end bike though too 14 percent is like literally the margin on some high-end bikes at a bike shop too so it's not like the bike shop is going to be eating that no bikes to buy at the moment anyway so <laughs> that's true right. maybe maybe that's what was, went on with the specialized theft 
They just needed bikes to ride. (laughs) Can't get any bikes anywhere. (laughs) Let's take these bikes from 1980 something. (laughs) Better than no bike. That brings us to our questions for today. And we're going to start off with the most important question of all. In our last podcast, Kazar and I talked about racing the EWS in Whistler and maybe racing each other. And then Brian said there might be a prize for that. Brian, what if if I beat Kaz, like when I beat Kaz, I mean, yeah, when you beat Kaz, obviously in that EWS race, because I love being timed racing downhills. What's the prize that I'm going to get? Well, I'm I'm afraid of making the prize too good because then you're going to train your face off, and it's just your productivity is just going to plummet. But I I don't know. It has to be a good prize. I was thinking, whoever wins never has to go to Eurobike ever again. I like Eurobike. I would like to go to Eurobike. Can we do, what about a sea otter? If I beat Kaz at EWS Whistler, I never go to sea otter again. If it happens again, and if not, we'll have to come up with something else. Wow, you like Eurobike. Then why do you complain about going every year? Is it just like a reflex? I hate sitting on that plane, man. I don't like planes. (laughs) Especially, Mm. I haven't flown for like a year now. You know how bad I'm going to be flying next time? (laughs) (laughs) She's already nervous. Hmm. Because Kaz kind of likes sea otter, if I remember. We could do if Levy wins no sea otter ever again, and if Kaz wins no Eurobike ever again. It's on. You know I'm quicker than Kaz down the hill, right? Like, you know this is how this is going to play out, right? As long as Kaz isn't on his fucking e-bike, he's been riding that thing nonstop. (laughs) It's all he rides. Well, I think you're just trying to encourage him to ride the e-bike, so he just doesn't, doesn't get any faster. Yeah. All right, Kaz, you're not in this episode, but you heard it. If I beat you, I get to skip a trade show and vice versa. No, no, like forever, though. Forever. It's a, it's, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. I know. Yeah, I will definitely try that. I, I'm going to blow up so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like you need to do the the E, the E-E-W-S, because mm. there's some uphill ones in that as well. Yeah. Really mixed well, I, up. I think that I, I don't want to do the e-bike thing, though, because I have Kaz on the fitness side. And I also have Kaz on the descending side. So I think we just want to do regular bikes. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's level moving the on, field. Moving on, moving on. No, no more talking about that. <laughs> Our next question, it's from Tominator. He says, he's got a tire-related question. We've been talking about tires a lot lately. He says, what would your ideal tire setup be if you're only allowed to use one setup for the entire year? Ben. Let's talk trail bikes I only, go. Ben. Trail endurishy type bikes. So like your 150-ish, you know? Endurish. Endurishy. Okay. Um, it's a tricky one because the conditions here vary a lot. So like one day you'll want a full spike. Like uh, like I'm riding for Schwalbe this year. So Dirty Daniels are pretty good. Like right now, Dirty Daniel is mint, but I would go like an intermediate. I mean, it's the obvious sensible choice. So I'd be Magic Mary's probably front and rear. They can do pretty much everything. We <laughs> making all the faces. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, Ben, I have a question about Magic Mary's. So I like them a lot okay. in the soft conditions, but you know what I really struggle yeah. with? We have a lot of roots here and those tall lugs, man, are they scary. Anytime it's on roots or even like a, a wide wood bridge, my traction goes from all the traction to none of the traction. Uh, yes, How ben do you Capro, deal with that? Free, free rider extraordinaire doing all the North Shore bridges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, r- <laughs> roots, like I find nothing 
grips on roots. Nothing yeah. like has traction on wet root. So you just you just deal with them. And uh yeah, bridges are just I just don't turn. You just really jump over them. Simple as that. Yeah, just in the yeah. air, no problem. Yeah. And then they are I mean they're draggier than other tires, but then I see that as good training. I pre- I would prioritize traction over efficiency. Yep, that's fair enough. I'm going to take it, look at it from a different point of view, though. Uh, most of my bikes would be like the bike that I would ride would be like a 120, 130, 140-ish kind of thing. And I'm you a big... You said Endurish. You said that's, that's my Endurish. Endurish. Well, I'd put a 160 fork on it. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Enduro bike, everybody. <laughs> Isn't that what happens? <laughs> um, but the, the, <laughs> what I'm getting at is I would probably pick something more versatile, Um like I'm a big Hans Dampf fan, not to be all schwalbe schwalbe here, but I love the Hans Dampf or maybe like a small size minion, uh, like a two, three, five tire. Um, yeah. Something well, I was well going to ask Ben, what, what, um, what width and what casing would you go with? Um, super gravity, which is like the tougher, but oh, not cool downhill casing. Ben. They're so heavy. Ben. Yeah. They are weight, very heavy. Weight is not grams. a consideration. Have you seen how heavy I am? <laughs> um, and then, yeah, there's soft compound, which is like not the softest one. Uh, I prefer that one. And mm-hmm. uh, I forgot the other part of the question. It was it was casing and 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 width. Width. Oh, I prefer the narrower ones. I find wider tires. Uh, obviously, you people would say weight penalty, but I'm not bothered about that. But I find they float over stuff more i prefer the narrower tire because it digs in and i've never really noticed that much of a benefit of like the bigger volume casings everybody listening ben's agreeing with me i always say 2.35 except for that time where you definitely said 2.8 well <laughs> that was years ago don't worry about it max take that part out <laughs> don't take that part out max <laughs> hey hey ben do you day-to-day riding would you put an insert on both ends, just the back end? What, what are you doing with that? Uh, I, I tested with this this year, actually. So um, I did a mix and my kind of cross-country trail bikes I had just in the back. And on my downhill bike, I had them front and rear. Um, but then I ran like a lightweight one in the front of my downhill bike and I put a, a few nasty marks on my front wheel. So now I'm like full fat ones front and rear in the downhill bike and then on my cross-country and trail bikes. I've actually started running them front and rear on that as well. And with and, your uh, super gravity it. magic marys on your trail bikes with casings? Yep. You're a monster. Absolutely. <laughs> I like it bad. <laughs> so Levy, I cut you off. You're you're doing Hans Donfs or or mini minions? Yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah. Like a two three five minion or a two three five Hans Donf. Are they that equivalent? Like a Hans Donf is a well a more well rounded tire than a than a minion. I assume you're talking um, DHR2, yeah? DHF. Okay. Yeah, the DHR is real too slow. I don't uh, Ben's over there like, I don't care about that. <laughs> Training. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go on to our next next question. It's from Bikehard11. Uh, he's asking us, do mind blowing bikes even exist anymore? It seems as if bikes have become so good in the past couple of years that when first impressions review come out, nothing is too surprising to anyone. I might be wrong. Bikes and bikes such as those that are nominated for bike of the year are pushing boundaries. But I feel like I haven't read reviews lately where you guys were blown away. Reviews such as Levy going nuts over the SB100 or Kaz calling the third generation nomad a bike from the future come to mind. 
where the language used indicated a large amount of excitement on your end. Have bikes become boring because they're so good? Uh, Yeah, kind of. From my perspective, a little bit, for sure. When you have to write about them, I mean, you want to sound... You want to make it exciting and interesting. You want people to read your reviews. So... A lot of times you are getting definitely excited about bikes. I'm, I'm, I tend to get excited about bikes as well. What do you think, Brian? Ah, it's a hard one because on the one hand, you don't, I, I think, and I've never reviewed a bike, but I feel like. That's not true. We have your hardtail review coming. Oh yeah. Right. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's it's going to specifically be called not a review because I've. Oh, okay, yeah, good. Yeah. I will write about it though. Yeah. The, you don't want to. You don't want to be forced to read your incorrect words and incorrect excitement on a podcast several years later, right? So that there's a, a fear there, right? Not that Embarrassing. you ever know anything about that, but you don't. So I think sometimes people are afraid to really stick their neck out, which is a bummer. And I, I, I think that there are pretty exciting bikes out there. Um, I think Levy was blown away the last few, uh, like two years ago. Or was it last year? with the with the poles and that would have been if it hadn't snapped in half that would have probably been it bent up there a for bike year, right snap it bent a bit what so picky. <laughs> people are so picky it just bent a bit. Yeah. <laughs> just go slack your head angle now relax <laughs> corner's better um yeah so i think there are still some pretty exciting bikes and things um obviously the grim donut's going to be bike of the year this year clearly 100%. I think I mean, there's exciting. some bikes that come to mind that I've gotten excited about lately, for sure. Like the Transition Spur would be one, got me mm-hmm. excited. Uh, the new Stump Jumper, that's pretty interesting, pretty exciting. There's some big changes there. Um, I think in the past couple of years with my writing, I've also tried to just be a little more like level about things, you know? Like How do you feel of looking back at those at those reviews? Like at the SB100 review, how do you feel about it now? Yeah, no, actually I wrote it. I wrote it. <laughs> I read it uh just like maybe two weeks ago because a buddy was asking me questions about an SB one hundred. And I still still think it all holds true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that at the time it was sort of one of those earlier examples of that kind of bike, like a really polished example from a well known company. And I was excited about it. And it yeah, still holds true. Yeah, I was thinking also about like the process one eleven. Oh, I am going to do a video that... review on those, one of those this year. I'm going to find an old one. For what it's worth, I, I think mind-blowing bikes exist. And like, I only ride a new bike every two or three years. So I get, kind of go along the progression curve in far greater increments. So I think if you're not riding new bikes constantly, like you really kind of do notice the big the big steps up. Um, or they, they feel like big steps up to me. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll just throw that out there that if you're not riding new bikes every week, they'll still blow your minds, new bikes for sure. I always think that being a reviewer must be a really hard job because I'll be riding my bike one day and be like, holy crap, it's the best bike in the world. I'll ride it another day and be like, oh God, this thing feels rubbish today. And how do you know which day you're having when you review this bike? Because you might be just having like the, the sickest day. You just feel like an absolute hero and you're like, this is the best bike I've ever ridden. But you could get it on another day and be like, yeah, it's okay. And it's oh, there, like, yeah, there's a couple, a a couple things to do there about that one of them would be consistency so you need to ride the bike like a handful of times at a minimum to be honest with you guys like i could get on a bike 
I remember RC said this to me years ago and I was like, yeah, I don't know. This was back when I thought I needed to ride a bike 30 times, you know, to write about it. And at the time honestly, you probably did need to ride a bike 30 yeah. times to write about it. True. True. For sure. Yeah. I could get on a bike now and it depends on the bike, but if I'm having a good day and I've been riding a lot, you know, I'll know about that, what that bike is about fairly quickly. But the key with that Ben is consistency. So you need to ride that bike you know, as much as you need to ride it. So you know that it's not just a good day. And then also the trails that you're riding it on. I have four or five trails that I ride basically all my bikes on in all the conditions. And I have some times and stuff that I pay attention to. Yeah. And that's kind of how I would do it. We also really carefully regulate Levy's monster energy intakes and Haribo intakes just to make sure that everything's sort of normalized. By regulate, they mean they make sure that I drink at least three a day. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Hey, Ben, when was the last time you got on a bike and were blown away? Thinking back. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be getting hate because you probably know what's coming. And it was first time riding my electric mountain bike. Castle, that he agrees with you. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're being sarcastic. There was a lot of chat before the show ripping on guys, <laughs> but uh, so I went out, rode my local trails, and usually I do like a like because we've had a baby this year. I've kind of semi restricted in the amount of time I can use for training, and I would go out. I'd get maybe two laps in, and then I'd have to come back. And I went out and I did four laps. I was like, this is this is amazing, and it rode like really really nice i actually my ride style suits a heavy bike and it's probably going to be relevant for things we're going to talk about later but uh yeah i just loved it couldn't get enough when you say your your riding style suits a heavy bike and we're going to get into that but i just want Mm. you to say what what do you mean Mm. by that so i'm not a twitchy rider i'm a floor so like the i'm not constantly that's why levy suits a light bike (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe maybe (laughs) So I, uh, I'm a floor. I like to kind of take wider lines and kind of, uh, carve my way down the hill rather than twitching about like a little, uh, monster fueled animal. I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) Animal's a good thing. Why don't we just get right into it? Let's, let's get right into talking about the privateer. And I want to start off actually before the privateer, Ben, I want to go back to MTB cut in the 2010s. To you riding in a skin suit with lead weights strapped to the bottom of an orange? Oh, I'm going to have to stop you on your uh, your research there. You're muddling. You're muddling updates and years. Uh-oh. So the skin suit, 2008. That was uh, on the Mojo, uh, Mojo suspension team. Yeah. So that was uh, riding for Chris Porter, who I'm sure you're yeah. familiar, heard of. He's said a lot of things and uh love opinions and one of his opinions was racing is for going as fast as possible so you're wearing a skin suit cracked on and- wore a skin suit went so fast like <laughs> overshooting the first corner on the track kind of fast is it a noticeable difference ben like i i've ridden i've ridden on road bikes bar- before i know that like baggy clothing yeah. can make a huge difference but for mountain bikers for downhillers out there that might not have any idea Tell us what it's like, the difference between baggy and actual tight clothing. It's quiet, which is weird. You don't realize how much noise your clothes make till you 
wear like tight fitting stuff. So it was like eerily quiet, although the bikes were very noisy. So quiet in a different way. There was the, the, the absence of that kind of wind rushing and the, the flapping noise you'd get. And it was at Fort William that we used it, which is a really fast track, fast average speed. So it was really noticeable. And the thing I always tell everyone is that I just went straight over the top of the first corner because I came in too hot. It was like <laughs> that much quicker. I just missed my breaking point. And Would you- especially at that time, the regular downhill clothes were like quite baggy. So I imagine the difference from that to a skin suit was even more than today. Everybody's pretty much painted on. But yeah, yeah. and I wear double XL. So you can imagine how baggy that was back then. I got a question for you, Ben. So since you guys are, you know, you're trying to go from A to B as fast as possible. You know, you guys are like ski racers. Shouldn't you be wearing skin suits? Why do you care? Why do people care what you guys look like? It's not allowed. I know it's not allowed, <laughs> it's actually, but don't you yeah, think that's stupid, Ben? It's outlawed, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I But I'm kind of not uh, image kind of like focused person you might be able to tell there's no video on this podcast but i'm looking a bit messy at the moment i think you look great i don't really care that much (laughs) so i i'm i'm function over fashion for sure if i can look good as well then mint but uh yeah i think we're pretty close to what the old skin suits were anyway though i feel like the clothing for the top guys is all form-fitted and looks decent as well so i think a proper skin suit, like made out of aero material, will make a difference, but not as big as it would have back in two thousand and eight. Right, right. What What about that lead weight strapped to the bottom of your bike? When was that? Was that in the two thousand tens? Nope, same year, two thousand and eight. Chris Porter again, the man, the man with all the theories. Right. And actually, it's it's a shame. I I I didn't kind of buy in to his theories back then. And, um i was still young and thought i knew everything so uh before i joined the team he sent me his personal bike that had just a lead bit of lead just molded around the down tube and then duct tape wrapped around it and uh i used it at a winter downhill race and i was like this bike feels sick like really nice really planted and then i got my own bike and i never really did the mod and i kind of i'm kind of a bit pissed that i didn't to be honest because i feel like it probably would have made a good difference like those bikes suited having the weight because it was like single pivot and they notoriously didn't track amazingly well they were more of like a light skippy bike uh so yeah i I wish i had tried it but uh yeah it was cool cool experimenting would you try it now i mean if it helped back then wouldn't it now could do it's i think it'll depend on the track like if you, the track prioritizes, uh, you know, scrubbing off speed and then accelerating out of corners, obviously the extra mass would reduce how quickly you can do that. But I guess most tracks these days are just flat out. So it should happen. We should try it again. It's a little bit like what you're talking about with the e-bike, right? Mm-hmm. The, that weight, that low centralized weight. Yeah. And like it's, it's, yeah. <sighs> I'd need to test it on uh, actual racing because just riding feels mint, but I've never actually tested it against the clock. Really. Very different thing, so, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that orange, Ben, the orange that had the, the lead weight strapped to it, do you remember the reach on that thing? Because I want to say, I've, I've never met you personally, but I want to say that you're about eight foot, nine inches tall. 
What was the reach on that orange? Yeah. You've got really good uh, perception of height. It's freakishly close. Yeah, I'm good <laughs> Six or seven for those who are listening. That's close. Um, it, see, I, I can't actually remember exactly what it was, but it was a, like a standard large back then. It must have been... 420? Oh, I'd guess around 450, 440. Uh, no way. No I way. don't think it would be that no long, Ben. No. I bet he was shorter. I mean, looking at the photos, it does look like hilariously bad. Uh, right. I kind of, frankly, I don't know how I managed. So, uh, yeah, they were definitely a lot smaller back then. I actually got a custom one. You know how, like, uh, on bikes, usually the down tube and the top tube meet at the head tube, and the head tube's then welded on the front. I got one where they just kept the down tube going, so that the down tube, like, was above where the <laughs> the top tube would be. So like yeah. the the top tube met about like three inches back from where the head tube was, and they just welded a triangle, like on the bottom underneath the down tube, and then stuck just the giant tube gusset. in front of that. That it's going to make no sense to anyone that's actually trying to picture this in their head. But it was it was a Franken bike, and it was amazing, right? <laughs> And how long had you been off your a downhill bike before the privateer kicked up? Before we started talking about you going back to racing, it had been a while. It had been zero years because I just thought I've always ridden downhill bikes. But in terms of racing World Cups, it had been yeah. four years. Four years of not four racing years. World Cups because downhill is like my passion and I've just kept racing, but only in Scotland. Right, right. I remember talking to Stevie Smith many, many years ago. We were in, we were at a camp in New Zealand and he was doing a ridiculous jump. And it was just before the season started. And I remember saying, Stevie, what are you doing? Like, dude, you got a race in like three weeks, like, or a month or whatever it was. Like, maybe you should dial back. Not that I know anything, you know, but like, it just looked. So I just was wondering like, hey, do you ever dial it back? And he said to me, he said... He told me that in order to be at his best, he always needed to be at that like World Cup race speed mindset. So you taking four years off from World Cups, was that a difficult headspace to get back into? So what happened was I took a year off. I raced the Scottish races, but I'd go into those Scottish races with the World Cup mindset. (laughs) I had a I had a streak of like winning all the races, beating all the World Cup riders at those races because they'd come in and be like, "Oh, yo, local race, come in nice and chill, get an easy win here," and then I'd come in like, "Let's go, it's World Cup time," <laughs> and then like absolutely smash it. So I kind of feel like I've not really had that much downtime, but uh, the World Cups just have a total different feel to them. So I more missed out the. I don't know, I guess the ambience of the race rather than missing out the kind of intensity of racing. Mm -hmm. So if, let's say you're at a Scottish race and there's a World Cup race, would you, are you saying you're going to take just as many chances in that Scottish Cup than you would in a World Cup? Yep. It's a race run. Go, I'll go as fast as I can. I mean, and also the time you hurt yourself this year wasn't exactly at full pin race pace, not to no. spoil the rest of the podcast, but <laughs> you know, I know accidents happen, you know, your injuries happen in the dumbest shit. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I, I just really enjoy the, 
the all out race run, you know, go and give it a hundred percent. So that's yeah, just what I've been doing, but only at the Scottish races. Nice. No need to work at it at all then. No, easy. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Is that was that the Stevie Smith New Zealand trip where he actually hurt himself quite badly, broke his ankle on on that gap? Yeah, I was gonna leave that part out. Oh. I didn't want to bring that. I asked him if he was worried about hurting himself, and then oh, like, so it's your fault. Five minutes later, he broke his ankle. <laughs> oh my god! That's literally what happened. You put, the doubt, you put the doubt in his mouth. Oh no! <laughs> oh. It was ridiculous, though. This jump was like it wasn't a yeah. jump. I mean, Ben, you know, you know what it's like. Was that was that the one just just before you get to the bottom of the hill? You just went kind of crest to crest. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, it was two separate doubles, and he was it was two separate tables, and he was quadding the whole thing, and it was, was so it's, gnarly. It's in a couple of other, I think Reese Potter maybe. That yeah, Reece I was going to say someone did it after yeah. he busted his ankle. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to talk points here because I not I don't I don't fully understand how this point system works for you to be able to race. In episode one of the Privateer, you said you needed thirty six points. Uh, for those that don't follow racing, what do you mean by that? How'd you get them? And yeah, tell us. So you, you actually have to qualify to be able to enter a World Cup. The, you do races around the world that are overseen by uh, the UCI, kind of like the World Cycling Federation. And uh, you take part in events that they oversee and you can win UCI points. You win 40 of those, and then you are then allowed to enter a World Cup. You That kind of like ranks you as being good enough to race a World Cup. And in the UK, these races are very, very hard to find. There's only maybe two, three a year. So it's it's really tricky to get the points. Like at that point in the series when you were watching, when I, I needed 36, I had four points, which I'd gotten from a race in Germany. Yeah. Germany like the year before and yeah it's hard to get points it's probably harder to get points in a in a place that has a strong racing culture like the UK versus some other places yeah so like the points work like any kind of racing points at any series like you win you get a decent amount you get second you get less and it gets less and less and less so we have 10 riders in the UK who are amazing and I would say definitely better than me at this point so i'd be like right okay i can just if i can slot in behind them maybe i'll get like five points or six points but then that's not enough to race a world cup so it's hard and they only last for a year so they they reset every year then yeah 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 there's there's like a bit of a tour isn't there some like british privateers do where they go down to portugal and other countries like greece and croatia and stuff and just try and like get dribs and drabs yeah. of points so they all kind of add up to the, the amount they need right they keep it secret as well so that no one else goes <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna sneak off to croatia and not tell anyone with corona this year making travel difficult was it hard to get those points so corona really hadn't kicked in uh at the point we were trying to find races for points hunting um so we managed to do the one of the only points races before everywhere started getting locked down and yeah if we'd been able to travel maybe there would have been other races i could have gained more at so 
I guess actually yes in answer to your question. The so, pressure looked uh, like yeah, it was definitely on. Makes things more difficult. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. But we were. I was counting on the backup option, which is your your national cycling federation can grant you permission to race if they think you're good enough from races you've done in Scotland or in the UK. They can go. Yeah, he's good enough. He doesn't have enough points, so we we say he can race. But there's only three slots for that. Right. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between a privateer racer and a full factory World Cup supported racer. Um, there's a very big difference, isn't there? <laughs> Huge, colossal. When you're a privateer, you are basically looking after everything from your travel, your food, all the expenses, basically all of that stuff. But when you're a factory racer, that's all sort of taken care of, I guess, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess there's varying degrees kind of in between as well. Like some people do have like people that will help them out, like parents will sort everything out for their kids who are racing and help them do that. And some people do it totally on their own. And then you get some teams that kind of are almost flirting in the middle. Like Mm -hmm. I think this privateer thing is a very expansive kind of range. There's a lot of people who have all the sponsors logos in their tops and they have like the, the newest bike and you're like, Oh yeah, they're fully factory. They're, they're not, they're, they're paying for their bike. They're paying for their travel. They are a privateer, but they look like they're like a fully factory rider. So most people who are racing at world cups are privateers, even if they don't look it, it's maybe only the top 20 who are actually factory and like professionals. And, and some of them might be making some money. But that it, they're not, they are not in in the truck. They're not staying in like hotel rooms on their own. They're not. They're not making any money, Brian. They just get to sell their frames at the end of the season. No, no, no. They're, they're <laughs> pe- people in the top forty uh, on the yes. men's side are definitely taking home a salary, of course. Um, Some. but it's it's not as much as I think people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the real measure of of factory versus non factory is sleeping in your own hotel room. Yeah, <laughs> that's the that's the like. Are you in the van, or or have you gotten an Airbnb with five other guys on the floor, or do you actually have a hotel room? That's where you made it as a factory racer. Are you under the van, <laughs> Ben? Do you get do you get factory support in the local hardware store? Right. Do you get factory support for Fox as far as suspension goes? They look after your stuff. And is that the same level as someone like Greg Minar or that kind of rider? Um, and do you, do you mean for me for this year? Yeah, for you. Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much the exact same program. We had uh, suspension. I had direct contact with the kind of Fox athletes. I had a slot at their, their testing day at the start of the year. And uh, yeah, I was getting the full factory treatment. That was the the whole premise was taking someone who was a privateer. I was never paid to ride my bike and then giving me as much as we could uh, could gather in the three months before the season. Had you ever done any factory level suspension testing before? Um, uh, on my own, yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah me too. <laughs> <laughs> come on as if chris porter didn't put you through some shit back in the day yeah well he just gave us timing pulls and said tweak dials and record times and report back and uh turns out he was right on a lot of things yeah what's for for 
Everybody who's never going to get to go to a Fox factory suspension testing session as a World Cup pro, what the heck is that like? So it's not anything completely out of the realms of what you would imagine. So literally, they supply you with a good track. So we were in uh, Loza in Portugal. They supply you with uplift. So you get the uplift over several days and then they supply you with the suspension and a person to tell you what the hell you're supposed to do with it. So um, doing that out in the trail yourself works really good, but being able to come down and then say to someone, right, uh, I felt like I was getting bucked through some compressions on the middle section of the track and the guys know the track and they're like, all right, okay, sweet. They tweak your dials and then send you back up again. You come down and you've tell them what happened and they'll be like okay right make some more adjustments and then it's just this to and fro between them until you feel like either your bike's working good or the clock says that it's fast and actually the clock saying it's fast is what you want did you find a difference between those two things um we didn't get far enough that's when uh the virus hit it was like we were day two and that's when the virus hit and we never really got to that point that we really found out exactly what was going on. And we're like, right, it's fine. We'll we'll reorganize later in the year. The virus will be gone in a couple months. <laughs> and yeah, <Oops. laughs> so that never quite happened. That must feel, you must feel pretty special. I'm not going to lie. Being, being able to go to something mm. like that. So let's move away from the tech stuff and let's talk about training. Let's start with this. I see some comments where people say that World Cup downhillers, they're not fit. Is that like a top 20 World Cup downhiller? What kind of fitness level are they at? Just for the people listening that might not know. I don't know if that's still a thing because it definitely, that was a thing in the past for sure. Because like it was, the image of a downhiller was don't train, go fast, get wasted, do it all again. And I, that's that's what a downhill racer was in the past. But everyone, the top guys back then, most of them were doing their secret training. And then it's it's just more, I guess, we've got more professional and definitely people, the top downhillers are insane. Like the, the example I've been using recently is Bruni went and did a cross-country race, end of season when he's unfit and smashed it. Like, I think he was like second or third. Like, you don't beat proper XE whippets unless you're an absolute beast so like yeah downhill guys are full on pre-privateer what was your training like if we go back to those those mtb cut days did you do training or was it party for ben oh definitely training i'm i've never been a partier i'm not like i'm not much of a drinker or like doing that kind of stuff i like to kind of just drive my bike and build tracks and that kind of stuff so back then i did what i thought was right and I would just ride my trail bike all the time, go really long rides, and then go to the gym and lift the heaviest things I could lift. And it kind of worked, but it wasn't very structured. And I was working back then, so I just ended up, I would just burn myself out. I would just do as much as possible and then come into the season a bit wrecked, just fatigued. So it's it, it was hard, definitely hard. So I'd say uh, I don't. the training isn't any different really i'm still doing gym work i'm still doing trail bike riding and stuff but it's just more planned with the coach I'm not now, right yeah so uh coach kind of guide me through things setting heart rate levels and stuff which is something i never did in the past i would just go as hard as i could 
for as long as I could and then be like, right, I'm pretty hungry and ruined now. I guess I'll go home and eat something. <laughs> right. <laughs> does being like properly trained and properly fit, does that um, feel different on a bike? Like, do you feel like it, it allows you to go faster? Um, I, I feel like at the end of a race run, I'm slightly less ruined. Like, uh, if, like for my whole racing career, I would always be at the bottom of the track, just absolutely ruined. And I was always really confused because I'd see other people coming through the finish and they'd be like, a few heavy breaths and then be all right. But I'd be in the corner hanging off my handlebars like a big bit of like, like an overcooked spaghetti and breathing for a good 10 minutes. So now I feel like I can I can be like those other guys who'd come in and just be like, feel I've put in a big effort, but I'm not dead. Like that's the kind of main difference I've felt. One thing I've heard people say about having a coach is that one of the biggest benefits to it is that the coach actually holds them back more. It keeps them keeps them from doing too much stuff. Do you feel like that mm -hmm. might have been a case at all with you? Yeah, definitely. Um because everything I've got planned out is kind of like uh, laid out with uh, heart rates and stuff, I, I can't go too hard, really, because I've just got this like little screen on my little bike computer on my handlebars with a little arrow. It's like a computer game for my heart rate. I just got to get the heart rate in the right spot and keep it there. And it's like, oh, nice, easy. I kind of feel like I'm not going hard enough, but coach says do this. So, yeah, it seems to work as well. I want to know how you managed the baby arrival with training. Um, it yeah. turns out, I don't know. <laughs> Babies are a bit of a time sink, eh, Brian? Yeah, like, it turns out. Who, who would have thought it? <laughs> like, it's, it's hard, actually. Really, really quite tricky because uh, training, I've found isn't just the, the the say two hours you assign to like going out it's in scotland the the hour of cleaning up all your crap afterwards because it's all like covered in mud then it's the, the going for a shower then i gotta make like decent meals as well like food to you know replenish everything that i've damaged in the training i think doing that properly takes a bit of time as well and then uh you have to sleep properly so I used to only maybe get like six hours of sleep like before I started trying to do this project and then Levy was saying, oh, I get 12. I don't know where you're playing at. That's how I'm at my best, Ben. <laughs> it takes so, a lot. Yeah. Hey, if you got 12 hours sleep, maybe you'd win a World Cup, Ben. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. Something, something just makes me like wake up and I'm like, okay, right. Okay, I'm up. Or actually... I'll probably sit on my phone in my bed for like an hour, but I can't sleep that long. I don't know. It's hard. Let's be real. Nobody can actually sleep that long. Levy, there's something that's wrong. There's something you need to get checked. You 12 hours of sleep is not room. okay. Brian, I just work so hard at this pink bike oh. stuff that at the end of the day, <laughs> I am just so tired. I just pass out for 12 hours. <laughs> just oh, slave driving. James, how much do you sleep in a night? Uh, uh, Nine-ish. Oh, you're going to win a World uh, Cup. <laughs> podium, maybe. That's how that works. <laughs> so, Christ, yeah, well, I'm I'm knocking around about eight now, and that's that's on a good night. That's when Jack's had a had a good night and actually slept all the way through. But he's got teeth now, so that's not happening a lot. Is he is he doing pretty good for the 
like daytime routine? Does he have his like nap? He's like locked into his naps and stuff now. He started fighting them. He, he actually, our, our son Jack has been amazing for the first kind of six months. Every making all other parents jealous. We're just like, yeah, he just sleeps. It's great. And then now, yeah, teething. And then I think they call it. They're more aware of what's going on so there's just so much information and stuff they're like they don't want to sleep because what's that what's that over there (laughs) i don't have a baby ben but isn't it like a bird like they're not sleeping you could just like put a blanket over them it goes dark and they go to sleep you know what that probably would work it just feels a bit cruel (laughs) (laughs) what if it works or like just like a teaspoon of nyquil just you know a little bit that's a monster just to just to balance it out that's when they wake that, up that's the mornings yeah <laughs> so yeah I, it's been super hard trying to mix the training with with a baby and I, like for people that do manage it like fair play so i'm Are still there... still doing well though getting getting fitter since injure myself so we're making progress are there a lot of world cuppers with kids there's a few uh so i know mick Hanna for sure Mike Jones, UK writer, just had one. And there will be quite a few others that maybe don't like publicize it because I think a lot of people are just keep like to keep it private. Uh, which is which is good. Um but yeah, there'll there'll be a few for sure. So the baby definitely mixed things up. Little Jack mixed things up, but we also see at the end of episode two that you're heading home with corona looming over everything and borders closing. Let's talk about motivation, Ben. When you don't know what's going to happen, how do you stay motivated? Did you stay motivated? Oh, yeah. Like, I was so motivated. I was like, hell yeah, we got more time to get even fitter and stronger. Because obviously, I'd been off the training for like four years. So I was just buzzing for it. All the other racers who've been training nonstop for the past however long were just like, oh, well, guess there's no race season. And they just kind of like bunked off. So I was like excited that I was going to get like super fit when all the other guys might be just like slacking off. So it was good. Like, uh, got home, just got on my bike, trained loads. Yeah, it was mint. Just lived in your sick home gym setup. <laughs> yeah. It did yeah. look good. That gym setup looked awesome. Oh, I still have it. No, it's, it, it was causing drama with neighbors. They, they did not like the gym. No motorbikes allowed, no gym allowed. What's the deal with your neighbors? What's they the sound like dicks. What's the point of living in the middle of nowhere if you can't do whatever you want? Okay, well, it's it's, it's middle of nowhere in terms that it's not a big city, but there's still a lot of people kicking about. And it's, yeah, oh, it's a shame. It's uh, the, the village I live in is big on uh, retired folks. It's like a nice quaint Scottish village and uh, people like not, having motorbikes and massive tents <laughs> in gardens and uh, uh, tall people making lots of weird, strange sex noises in said tent. Wait, what? <laughs> just this eight foot, eight foot, nine inch tall guy just making sex noises in his black tent. <laughs> I think it's a sex cult in there. Call the police. <laughs> Levy, can you do a Scottish sex cult? Can you attempt a Scottish accent? Was that not one there? <laughs> no that was like an old lady i can't do it i don't even know i can't do I scottish, old, scottish, old scottish lady accent old scottish lady um oh, uh 
Dude, no, I can't. It's <laughs> too much pressure. <laughs> you know, I was gonna, I was gonna start this episode by singing a Christmas song as well too, and I also chickened out from that. Well, I think you need to now because how else is gonna be Christmassy? We can I do know. it for the interlude. Uh, yeah, I'll do, I'll do it after. I'll do it after. <laughs> hey Ben, we saw you build a a pretty cool track as well too. Did you actually pay all those people with gummy bears? Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of Haribo, but. Uh... <laughs> I, I was I also felt like so I don't know almost guilty that all these people were helping so much and I know it was on the the main dig days like I would do a weekly dig day I'd be like right I'll bring up loads of coffees and I'd get up super early make coffees put them in loads of flasks and have like a big huge multi pack of gummy bears take it up and then everyone would just say ah oh, you're just doing that because you got cameras and I was like I'm not I was like I'm really really thankful for you guys being here honestly and then. Also, obviously coronavirus, so there was a little bit of like, should I be giving people stuff as well? So we had like loads of like hand wipes and I had disposable cups that were uh, kept like in a like container that people would get them out of and stuff. All right, let's talk about something a little less gummy berry. You had a pretty bad crash and a pretty bad injury. And that was not on the track that you built, was it? No, it was on a track just down the road, actually. And it was, uh, I got a couple of friends who actually work for Fox Suspension. They're the World Cup technicians. And they were just setting off to go to the EWS. So we were just having a nice, relaxing farewell ride. Just a few mates up, a little sunset ride down this nice mellow track. And uh, yeah, we're just having a nice chilled ride down. And I don't remember what happened. If people have seen the episode, we tried to piece it back together. We do a little bit of crash scene investigation. Is Pro- just, to, the mo- just to stop you there, Ben, was that important to for you to be able to figure out why you crashed? Uh, for your I mental always, recovery? always like to know what happened. You know, whenever whenever someone's like, oh, I've had a really bad injury or someone's done this, I immediately want to know what happened. What did you do? It's just like, I don't know, I really hard-coded desire that I must know what happened so I don't know if it was kind of compulsory for recovery and mental things but it probably helped so yeah I uh I don't remember what happened but the my mates found me on the ground snoring tangled up with my bike and uh I can I came to and then apparently I was just talking absolute rubbish for about half an hour I was just like where are we oh right we're here well, what what were we doing? Why were we here? And just like repeating the same questions over and over again. And then about 30 minutes in, my brain actually kind of woke up and I was started remembering things. And then it seemed to me that I'd just woken up, but like, you know, you've been conscious for like 30 minutes and just talking rubbish. So I was properly concussed and also broke my neck and my collarbone. But I wasn't really aware of that at the time. Ah, was that your most serious injury to date um yeah yeah for sure um it's not been the kind of most problematic like my recovery has been brilliant like things have healed up really nicely i've had other injuries that are still plaguing me now and this should hopefully not be an issue um still got a little bit of pain but nothing serious but in terms of what could have happened anything to do with your spinal cord is yeah scary for sure with the concussion recovery, how was that? Did you have to do anything specific? How bad were your, your concussion symptoms? I know that's a bit I, of a serious yeah. topic. 
I didn't think it was bad. Like I was like, you know what? I'm feeling not too bad. I think it's going to be okay. But I got really bad uh, fatigue, fatigue from it. So like uh, a good friend of mine is a is a orthopedic surgeon and is a biker as well and is familiar with concussion and injury. And he was like, right, we're going to do this test on you. We're going to ask you questions that's going to engage your brain and do some balance tests. And I did all that and I was like, yeah, I nailed these tests. I'm doing good. <laughs> and then afterwards I went home and then I just passed out for two hours, fell asleep. I was like, just like absolutely just smoked from trying to engage my brain. And then uh, when we did the retest down the line, he was like, right, the lower the score, the better. You scored 46 on the first test and you scored three on this next one. Oof. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so I was really concussed then. So that was that was an eye opener. Um, yeah, it's a scary thing. I remember doing a concussion test and I thought I did it with a doctor and a nurse and I thought that I nailed it. Yeah, you're like I was convinced <laughs> that I nailed it. <laughs> and uh, about half an hour later, they came and found me and they're like, mm, <laughs> "You're not good." <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it's funny that that fogginess. It's hard to yeah. it's hard to describe. Well, people say it's like being like really drunk. It's like your perception's just gone. So it's like you're you're, you're driving home absolutely plastered, and you're thinking you're nailing it, and there, there's a stop sign wedged in your bumper, and a old lady hanging off your wing mirror. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe it wasn't so good. How long uh, after the injury did you kind of think that maybe the World Cup thing wasn't going to happen this year? So I was really sure I was going to be fine because, um, like, my neck was feeling better um, and, like, any injury I'd had before then, I was, like, six weeks maximum and we're back on the bike and raring to go. Like, I, I've raced with, like, plates in my collarbone that weren't fully healed and it was all, like, you know, a bit sore but fine. And my neck was feeling fine. I went riding to kind of test it out. It's like, yeah, this feels this feels great. Um, and then I talked with that same guy, the orthopedic surgeon, uh, you and Rossi, and he went, "What are you doing? Are you an idiot? <laughs> like you shouldn't be back on a bike. This is a neck injury. If you land on your head, you could be a quadriplegic. Like, what are you doing?" I was like, "Oh." All right, okay. A bit of a wake-up call, it sounds like. Yeah, like, huge wake-up call. And, like, I guess the, I just assumed doctors were just being cautious. You know, they always say that. It's like, no, you should rest for two months. Don't touch your bike till then. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Yeah, six weeks. Uh, six weeks is how long no, it takes for a bone yeah, to heal, right? Of What's course. Done? And, uh, yeah, and I rode my bike, and, God damn, I was going quite quick and feeling feeling decent. But then he, he brought me back down to earth. And then the few days after that test ride, my neck was pretty sore. And it was like, yo, fair enough. That's probably the right call. <laughs> Definitely the right call. Was that the was that really the episode six first ride back? Was it was it really that? Or did you do a little test beforehand? Oh, there was no, no, that was first time properly riding. Like I'd done a bit of turbo and a little bit of just like, I don't know, riding around my car park, bouncing on the bike, just to kind of, I don't know, keep the stoke up. And then when you How, get the uh, news that maybe you shouldn't be riding your bike anymore, that's when 
you lent, you lent your bike to some actual privateers and coached them through doubleheader weekend. How was that? Yeah, that was like still looking back in that now, like I've watched those episodes again. I, I just can't help but smile and be mm-hmm. so stoked. Like it was amazing. Uh, cause there was like, yeah, a couple of guys that would have been able to race one of the world cups. Like they were trying to borrow bikes cause their, their airline lost them and they wouldn't have been able to race. And then because I was there and couldn't ride, they were able to, they were able to do it. And it's, yeah, it was amazing. And then there was a couple other young guys that were uh, with us as well, who would have just been pitting out the back of like their cars. They were privateers. They would have just literally had nothing there and they were able to use the, the full pink bike privateer pit set up use my mechanic and i was up on track with my binoculars out trying to like spot lines and like radio down to them and be like yo 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 do that inside honestly it's sick like oh no wait wait actually it's falling apart go back to the outside the outside is sick (laughs) so that was cool so such a rad thing to be able to do and in episode seven you make a joke about telling jamie and michaela that you're you're they're killing it and you make a joke about saying that you're only saying it to make them feel good but then you go on and say that it's important for them to maybe like kind of hear the right thing mentally what did you what did you mean by that so that wasn't it wasn't actually a joke that we were saying that that they genuinely were riding really well but the thing i was referring to when we were talking about that is like you don't want to maybe bring their attention to things that are maybe going to affect them negatively. So, for instance, like I saw a line someone was taking uh, in the women's category that looked quicker, but then Michaela hadn't ridden it yet. And I know she likes to be really prepared and have time to try lines a few times. So it's like, right, I'm not going to tell her about that because she's just going to freak out and worry that she's going to do not well because she's not doing that line. So it's just like trying to pick the right things to feed back on so that they don't negatively get affected, but also picking the right things to say to, you know, get them in a positive mindset as well. And it's really hard, really hard. I guess it's, how do you decide how much information to share? Uh, you just play it by ear. I think like I, I, I had this issue uh, two years ago. Uh, I think two years ago where the specialized team actually brought me on as a line consultant for a few races. Um, And it was back when I was just doing my trackside videos and they were like, right, we want you to film sections, figure out what the fastest line is and tell the team. And then I would do that. And then someone on the team would be like, I don't like that line. I don't feel comfortable on that line. And you've just told me that I'm losing time because I'm doing that line. And I was like, have I just ruined their weekend because now they're, all they're going to be thinking about is that. And it really got me thinking about the whole thing, like the psychology of it all. And it's it's such a minefield. So it's learning the people and learning what you should feed back to them. Uh, I think that takes a bit of time and a bit of like getting to know people. Right. I remember racing downhill as a junior and thinking that I needed to amp myself up before races. So I remember before I'd go to the start line, I would listen to, you know, whatever shitty rap music or metal music and, you know, (laughs) pump, pump, pump. And in hindsight, I'm very much a person that needs to calm down before races. And it is, there's so much head stuff that goes along with this sport that I think 
some people don't think about as well too. It's a big part of it, isn't it? It's huge. I think because there's so many variables, there's so many ways you can like do well in a race, like tire selection, line selection, how you ride, different bits, your pacing. So many variables involved. And people, they always talk about it when they're commentating. It's like, oh, do you need to ride it aggressively today? Do you need to let it hang it out? Or do you need to be smooth and reserved? And it's like, any of them could work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, it just, it. whoever's just gelling on that day, Bruni's like a real smooth rider. If he's just having a mint day, he'll do a smooth run and go into first and then some sketchy random will just absolutely like just go for it and just put together a run and it'll work and it's like it's a really yeah it's a weird thing and i think like your lines and how you do things doesn't matter as much as getting yourself in the right headspace so that you can just do the best run i'm having a total mind fart here but what it was laurie i think had one of those runs last year where it was just just over the edge and, and he won, Val, won. valdesole yeah there we yeah. go yeah um but that was looking at his run versus second and third the so total different approaches to yeah. getting on the podium yeah and it's, it's not that any one approach was required it just that's how the chips fell that day it's such a pressure cooker environment as well, like watching your competitors all week and like not letting what they're doing like affecting you and then knowing <laughs> that you've got one three minute chance and you've got to be perfect for three minutes. It's like I don't know, pulling pulling yourself together in the in the startup must be ridiculously like hard. You just gotta be really selfish. Just like focus internally on your own game. You know what you're doing. If you see anything interesting pick the bits that you like like oh that line looks interesting i'll do that like but just trying not to let like some people in practice you watch you're like holy shit they're going fast like we used to always get it with watching uh at the races at the scottish races when the elites were going off the juveniles would be going off from from their first runs would be like holy shit the juveniles are going so quick if they're going that fast like Am I, am I going that fast? I must be going too slow. And yeah, you can totally just mess yourself up. So yeah, just don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Focus on your own game. Right. Are you someone who wants to be amped up before you drop in or someone who needs to be, wants to be calmed down before you drop in? I'm, I'm a pretty level person. I feel like I like to be kind of level, composed, the plan's all in place, but I don't need to be calmed down. I feel like, I got, I got this, but what I do like to do is get a bit inspired with uh, music, and it's something I've not used a lot in the past, but I'm starting to use more now. It's just trying to get like I don't know these positive feelings in the head, and using music to kind of help with that. So I guess kind of call that amping up, but I'm not trying to get like absolutely flipping. <laughs> you just want to get in the right mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Speaking of right mindset, we saw Jamie and Phil come in with a fourth and a fifth place in Lusa. Dude, goosebumps. <laughs> that was crazy. Like, massive credit to Max for, like, stringing that together, the editor. I, he did that really well, and it was just, yeah, I get goosebumps. I was there. I get goosebumps watching it. It's so cool. And That's it was like, Max Rendell. Matt, the, yeah. 
did the filming shout out yeah he did such a good job this season yeah yeah absolutely crushing it he's so good with uh, emotion and storytelling so yeah did really good with that and uh it was mint because you could see you could see it coming through practice like uh jamie and uh and phil were like the people to watch like there was a bit in in the series where steve pete was just like shouting to jamie like dude slow down (laughs) you're you're going too fast just imagine that steve pete telling you to slow down yeah (laughs) just if you'd come in about five miles an hour slower you probably would have made it out that section (laughs) so yeah oh unbelievable like the best end to the short World Cup season we could have had. Yeah, it was rad. Well, yeah. they could have, you know, you could have, yeah, whatever. We won't go there. <laughs> we, look, don't focus on what, what ifs. For what for what happened, that was the best ending. Seems like a bit of like a huge year for Scottish downhill as well. Um, yeah. What's the scene like in Scotland at the moment? Uh, isolated. It's kind of similar to everywhere else. <laughs> no, like, uh, I was liking, there's a few comments, people saying, Reese Wilson only won world champs because he rode Cathro's track earlier in the year. <laughs> well, that's what I've been telling people, obviously. Yeah. It was the best preparation he could have had. <laughs> it was cool. I got a little uh, little bit of info. Like, Max is good friends with Reese Wilson, who won the downhill world champs this year. And he said that going into that season, Reese had said he feels like he could win one of the races this year. That was kind of his feeling. Like he felt like his prep and his riding, he was like, I could win one. And if we're talking about positive mindset, I mean, there you go. That's that's how you do it. He wasn't fooling himself. His destiny. Yeah. And like I, I had that once where we were that year when I was on the Mojo team, I was like said, I said to the guy who was helping train me, I was like, I'm going to get a podium this year. I nearly did. <laughs> I crashed, but I was only two seconds off. It was close. It was close. <laughs> yeah, it was not a big crash. It was a into a tree, shit, and then set off again. But it was close. Speaking of podiums, Ben, maybe we should talk 2021 here. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Here's the... I mean, so- so here's the question like obviously we're still working on the, on the program for next year and we'll announce plans once everything's in place but what what i want to know is like obviously we have a lot of you know obscenely wealthy gun running money laundering oligarchs that listen to this podcast i know i know that <laughs> and they're going to listen to this episode they're going to reach out to pink bike after write me a blank check for next year's privateer series so we're going to have unlimited resources what do you want to do hmm so my my big thing this this year that I learned was that uh, pinning a rad series on one rider, there's inherent risks there. So I injured myself, couldn't race. We managed to make it work, but I feel like we need to, you know, give a give a bit more guarantees to the series. So I want more riders, and there are some that I'm quite keen on. I'm not going to say names yet because we can't announce anything yet because we're still working on that. But there's a few people that we'd like to bring under the privateer kind of banner and maybe start a little bit of a team. I and mean, they need help, right? Like, Oh, they, yeah. There are people that are in that sort of no man's land. Yeah. Of, of That's it. Some support, but not really. But yes, but no. Like enough support that they can't work a full-time job, but 
exactly. not enough support that they can quit the job. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, some folks that just need that stepping stone. So yeah. that, that's what you want to do. Yeah. So f- finding some other privateers who are rad people, who are rad writers, who have really good potential and just doing everything we can to try and help them succeed at World Cups. Which How many is massage therapists do you need? <laughs> one each minimum. <laughs> oh. one it's Lars Berger and Danny Hart we're talking about, isn't it? Right? Like they're both off a team. <laughs> oh yeah, good point. Good point. And I think they they're only what ten thousand a year. Is that what they get paid? Yeah. I was actually I thought you meant getting Loris as the um as the Sonyers. No, <laughs> world's, world's fastest masseuse. <laughs> <laughs> He, uh, was there not a video with him getting massaged by Petey the other day? Wonder if wonder if well, Petey's any good. Petey. Yeah, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> hey Ben, you sound like you enjoy sort of this the organizing, the uh, helping riders, that sort of stuff. Years from now, Ben Cathro team manager? Or no, I mean, given the plan for next year, it's kind of looking like I'm going to be in both camps a little bit already so it's definitely not off off the cards like i really enjoyed it obviously helping those guys um i think i need to work on my uh, organizational skills a little bit sharpen up and make sure everything's all done on time but yeah it's it's not not against it's not you know yeah we'll you see. know your your uh, experience with a, with a child with an infant is going to prepare you well for for team management yeah, exactly. There's going to be a lot of nappy changing, a lot of uh, a lot of bottle feeding, throwing toys at the pram. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and well, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe I have a sick season next year, and I'm going to be racing for the next five years. But we'll we'll Obviously. see. We'll see how that goes. On the Grim Donut Pink Bike Factory team, maybe. No. I mean, I I think I would be a prime candidate for the longest slackest bike ever made. So yeah. <laughs> All right, Ben, we're going to end this with one last question here. A ton of pinkers have been watching the Privateer series. They've been following you. They love racing. I want to know if someone wants to get fast on their downhill bike. Let's hear some advice. What do you got to tell these people to get faster on their downhill bike? They want to go racing. It's really simple. So here we are. Here we are. This is it. To get better at anything. Everybody listening. Big secret. Do it more. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that, honestly. That's it? <laughs> I mean, if you're already doing it 24-7, I don't know what else to say. But, on, like, I would say it's proper, like, um, smart practice. So look at what you're doing, what you're strong at, what you're good at, um, figure out what you're weak at. And work on those things. Like I used to be really bad at flat turns because I used to just hang off the back of the bike and wash my front wheel out on all of them. So what I had to work on was working on my body position, how I weighted my bike so I could get better at those flat corners and do better at races. So you just need to ride your bike lots, figure out what is maybe your weaknesses and uh, try and actually practice them. Don't just do a full run and get to the bottom and go back up for another one. If you screw up a turn, go back. Try it, have a few goes, try a few different tactics and just experiment. Ride your bike lots and experiment and don't forget to have fun because sometimes if you're really focused on trying to get better, you forget to just enjoy it because bikes bikes are red. 
Nice. We'll have to maybe make sure Kaz hears this so he has a chance to beat me for that EWS Whistler race. (laughs) (laughs) Kaz, did you hear him? (laughs) I just, Levy, you're going to have to tell me what what ad read you want to do next week. I didn't say, hey, Pinkers. I said, the Pinkers want to know. Like is it? It's it was not the, the hay. It's not the hay part of it. It's not. Oh, it's not. Okay. Well, it turns out, yeah. All right, we're going to end this episode with comment gold. Uh, this one was on suspension product of the year. It was from Rodeo Dave. I like that. I like that name. That's a good one, Rodeo Dave. He says, "I have said this before, but I still can't over get over the fact that Fox didn't name their air bleeders Fox Air Release Technology." <laughs> I love acronyms. <laughs> oh, nice. It's really Hey-o. important. They're an important part of mountain bike culture. It is. That's a good one, Rodeo Dave. So that's it for episode 37. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to The Privateer. Ben, thanks for joining us. Kaz, I hope you picked up a few pointers. 